1: Hey, everyone. I'm Zach Wolf, a senior writer at CNN, and this is The Daily DC. We have lots to cover, and if this week is any indication of the election year ahead of us, then the American people are in for one hell of a ride. New allegations this week of Russian election meddling. Trump is not happy about it. Not at the Russians, but rather that Congress was briefed. That may have something to do with the reason he edged out his acting director of national intelligence, Joseph Maguire, and replaced him with the current ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, which means the top spy in the country will also be something of a Twitter troll himself. During this episode, we'll also get into the ever-unfolding saga that is the Roger Stone trial with the CNN crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polence. But before we do, we'll preview the Nevada caucus tomorrow. Joining me now to talk about the 2020 state of play is CNN political analyst and national political reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui. Thank you for joining me, Sabrina. Thank you for having me. Um We get so focused here in Washington on what Trump is doing. (laughs) You almost forget at times, at least I do, although it's becoming harder, that there is this whole Democratic primary going on. And that may have something to do with the fact that it looks like Bernie Sanders, uh, the Democratic socialist, the person that a lot of more establishment Democrats think is the most vulnerable person in a in a two way race with President Trump, He could walk away with this thing starting in the Nevada caucuses uh, this Saturday. Let me ask you for your take. Number one, is Sanders walking away with this thing?
2: Well, this reminds me a lot of the 2016 election where establishment party figures are very worried about the prospect of a candidate that they think might be unpalatable to the general electorate and who they believe has a ceiling, but they're contending with a very fractured field and therefore the very real probability that that person, that insurgent candidate, runs away with the nomination. Am I talking about Donald Trump or am I talking about Bernie Sanders? And I think that what you see right now is Bernie Sanders winning the popular vote and effectively tying in delegates in Iowa caucuses with Pete Buttigieg winning in the New Hampshire primary poised to win or do very well in Nevada, clearly collecting those delegates in this all important uh, delegate race. And so because the rest of the field is really splintering the non-Bernie vote, that is really what is most advantageous to him at this point, because he is hovering around the 28. 29% in most of these polls, that leaves a lot of the Democratic electorate up for grabs. But they're currently having to choose between Joe Biden, who's still in the race, Elizabeth Warren who's still in the race, Pete Buttigieg. There's a big unknown around Mayor Bloomberg. And so that's really the biggest challenge for establishment Democrats is how do you convince the party to coalesce around one alternative to Bernie Sanders?
1: One one thing I think we saw at the debate this week was this kind of uh, question for Democrats about that, you know, they had on the one hand, they had Sanders, the Democratic Socialist, and the other, they had the billionaire Michael Bloomberg. And it was sort of this identity crisis. Do we go after the Democratic Socialist or do we go after the billionaire? And they clearly decided collectively, the people on stage, the moderates, the progressives, they were going to go after the billionaire.
2: Well, in many ways, Michael Bloomberg was the perfect foil for what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have tried to campaign on over the course of the past one year, if it's Bernie, the course of the past four years now. And I think that what other Democrats on that stage realize is the energy is behind the progressive wing of the party not behind Michael Bloomberg, who was up on that stage in part because he has poured more than $400 million into the race. And I think that even with the other establishment figures on that stage or more centrist candidates, they're not about to step aside for someone who only into the race last fall didn't even compete in the early states and who they believe is trying to buy the election. And so I think the immediate threat in the eyes of many was Michael Bloomberg to kind of send a message that this isn't your time. This isn't your field to suddenly come and try to walk away with or your nomination. And, and I think they also recognize that there's more of a risk in attacking Bernie Sanders, who, as I mentioned, has a lot more energy and enthusiasm behind him. And it's, he's kind of like Trump. No matter what you throw at him, that's what his opponents say. It just emboldens his supporters. It hardens his support with his base.
1: He does have energy, but it's a very specific kind of energy. And it's, it's ideological rather than anti-Trump. I think these are people who want to change the way the US treats its citizens in a fundamental way. They want to re- reimagine healthcare, higher education, all of these things. And it's almost like you would you would you will with Sanders as the nominee, will you put us in a in a position where Trump is the one sort of representing the status quo even though he's Donald Trump. He has done more to, you know, mess with the status quo in this country than than any politician, I think, ever, um, you know, at least in recent memory. So what do you make of that? This sort of fundamental changes of the Sanders, you you know, his policy does more to change the country in a lot of ways than Trump's does. And is that going to scare people in the middle that ultimately decide elections?
2: Well, I think that Trump was running more on this anti-establishment anti-two-party system sentiment among a lot of voters and really capitalizing on anger and frustration with the system. But he's governed a lot more like an orthodox Republican, with the exception of the ways in which he's upended the institutions and the agencies in terms of his actual policies. He's been fairly orthodox. Uh, But if you look at Bernie Sanders, I think one of the other differences is not just that he's much more ideological, but he's had a fairly indelible impact on the Democratic Party. Not all those candidates support Medicare for All or a Green New Deal or free college tuition, but they've put forward variations of those same ideas. And so I think that's why there is a sense that Bernie Sanders, at least among his supporters, uh, may not actually be as um, outlandish of a candidate as Trump was. A lot of the also controversy with Trump was around rhetoric, not around policy. And when you when Sanders, the Sanders campaign will say is when you poll test a lot of his ideas, you'll actually find a lot of support within the American electorate, for that kind of institutional change, for those much more far-reaching progressive proposals. uh, A lot of people who do believe that there are fundamental gaps still in the healthcare system, a lot of people who do believe that college affordability is a top priority. And so that will be put to test. I think Republicans will certainly attack him as a socialist. But look, you know, Republicans thought they're going to lose the House and the Senate if Trump were at the top of the ticket in 2016. They kept both their majorities in Congress and they won the White House. Can Bernie Sanders pull that off? Is his ceiling different from that of Trump's? That's really what the test would be if he were the nominee. But again, we're not yet there. It's still a very crowded field. And we'll see especially what happens both in Nevada and South Carolina and then in the all important Super Tuesday contest next week.
1: Right. Next week. Well, you know, they're coming up, but don't forget. um, And I I think that this is overlooked a lot of times millions of people have already voted in Super Tuesday states with with mail-in and early. So that stuff is happening right now in these news cycles. So that's that's something to think about. Okay, let's totally change gears here uh, a little bit from 2020. Joining us now is CNN crime and justice reporter Caitlin Pollins. Serena is going to stick around and and talk to both of us. Caitlin, I know the courts uh, and and how they work are one of your favorite things in the world. Of course. Uh, It was a big week for you. Um, Roger Stone was sentenced after Donald Trump essentially tried to put his thumb on the scales of justice. Was he successful in doing that?
3: Oh, gosh. Well, if we start there, um, at the end of the day, the judge did end up going less than what the Justice Department originally asked for. But what we saw in the hearing with Roger Stone yesterday was that the Justice Department basically stood up and went back to the standards that the prosecutors who quit the case last week after Bill Barr overrode um, their decisions on how – they wanted Stone to be sentenced, the Justice Department went back to to what they had used as their their standards for saying, this is what Roger Stone deserves. This is what the Justice Department thinks Roger Stone deserves. And so that was actually a really surprising part of the hearing.
1: So the DOJ you know, essentially says he deserves a shorter sentence. And then after the outcry at the sentencing hearing, they go back and say, give him the long sentence.
3: They said, we're not going to actually take a position, which is what ultimately the Justice Department said in their revised version of this. but But they still said, when you calculate the sentence, we want you to go plus one, plus one, plus one, plus two, plus eight. And the judge did like plus one plus one plus one plus eight um, instead. So it it ended up being a situation where um, he wasn't sentenced as harshly, and that was sort of always expected in that.
1: However, way. the mm-hmm. judge did uh, essentially write a strongly worded letter to the White House and the American people about what's going on. You have a little bit of that here, and and this struck you, I think. What what was it about what Judge Amy uh, Berman Jackson said that? you thought was so important.
3: Yeah. So um, this judge is the judge that we have seen handle all of the major uh, or most, uh, except for one or two major criminal cases that came out of the Mueller investigation. She sentenced Paul Manafort. She sentenced Rick Gates. This time around, she's sentencing Stone. And we saw her at a level of intensity yesterday in discussing both what happened in 2016, what was done on behalf of the president by Roger Stone in 2016, and what was done to shake Congress and democracy. We saw her discuss that in a way that she um, she made it very clear. Um, that truth still matters, and what Stone was doing on behalf of the president was trying to cover up the truth. Um, and it ultimately hurts Americans, and in theory, helps Russia or our, our other. Uh, other people who are trying to influence our democracy. And so the quote that that really jumped out, this was right before she gave Stone his sentence. Um, she spoke for maybe a full hour about how she arrived at deciding that Roger Stone should be um, sentenced to three years and four months in prison. Um, and she said uh, she's speaking about Stone's lies, and she says that if Stone's crime goes unpunished, The direct quote is, "'Everyone loses because everyone depends on the representatives they elect to make the right decisions on the myriad of issues.'" And then she says, everyone depends on our elected representatives to protect our elections from foreign interference based on the facts. No one knows where the threat is going to come from next time or whose side they're going to be on. And for that reason, the dismay and disgust at the defendant's belligerence should transpar- transcend party. And she then continued to, to talk about dismay and disgust that should transcend party about what happened in 2016. And now we're just seeing that almost like Groundhog Day. It's repeating. It's, it's Congress is trying to get the information. The same day
1: she says those words. Yes.
3: She says it in the morning by, you know, six o'clock or eight o'clock, whenever the story broke about the congressional. um,
1: We learned that uh, essentially the intelligence community had gone up to Capitol Hill to brief lawmakers about Russian meddling. And it gets back to the White House. And President Trump is then frustrated that the intelligence community (laughs) briefed Congress because he was worried that it would be used against him politically. But he's upset
2: that. The intelligence officials briefed Congress that the Russians are still trying to fear in the election. He's not upset, it seems, at the substance of the briefing, which is the fact that the Russians are still actively trying to meddle.
3: Right. And what's so what if we go back and remember what actually happened in 2016, I mean, uh. Sorry, the president, Donald Trump, has been extremely unhappy about the Mueller investigation, what it might mean about his election and the integrity of him being elected president in 2016. But what happened in 2016 with Roger Stone was that he was working on behalf of the campaign um, or helping the campaign, maybe not paid, um, but was trying to get to see or at least telling them that he was trying to get information out of WikiLeaks that the Russians had stolen and given to WikiLeaks. And then he went to Congress to testify. And Congress at that time was led by Republicans. Devin Nunes was the chair of the committee that um, that interviewed Stone under oath and asked him um, – What were what did he have a back channel? What was he doing? Was he talking to the campaign about what he was trying to get out of WikiLeaks? And Stone just lied. He just lied to them. He he stopped Congress from getting documents. I didn't realize
1: that Stone was convicted for lying to Devin Nunes. Yes.
3: (laughs) And that was a point that, you know, the judge really wanted to point out that this is not about politics. This is not about Democrats being angry at Roger Stone or anything like that. This is this is an investigation that was done by the Department of Justice. Robert Muller who worked for the Department of Justice during the Trump administration, finding the facts of the matter. And the facts of the matter was that Roger Stone was obstructing a Republican-like Congress. And when you talk about the Mueller
2: investigation, and there's still a lot that's made of what came out of it, and did the president obstruct justice? And I think a lot more people got, were focused on the uh, allegations of obstruction and the actual origins of that investigation around Russian interference sort of got lost in in the in the conversation about the fine. And one of the most sobering parts of Robert Mueller's testimony on Capitol Hill was not when he was talking about whether or not the president was trying to fire Don McGahn or the ways in which he was trying to influence the investigation. One of the biggest takeaways was when he was asked about whether or not the Russians are going to do it again. He said they're doing it as we
3: sit right here. That's right. And I mean, one of the the things that's happening right now is we're still living. So like our daily life in covering news is we're still living and talking about these cases that originated in actions that happened happened in 2016, like Stone or Michael Flynn, or coming up soon, there's a, a tr- one of the Russian groups, a company, is going to trial over the disinformation campaign um, that Mueller indicted them for allegedly taking part in, ma- this massive social media propaganda effort that was allegedly done by the Russians. That's going to trial now. So we're still getting to the bottom of the facts of what happened in 2016. But things move a lot faster nowadays. Right. And
1: here 2020 is. We're, we're, we're still getting the bottom of 2016. Democrats have impeached President Trump for trying to inter- interfere in the 2020 election or get Ukraine to interfere in the 20, 2020 election. And here we are. Now we're learning the Russians are doing it. Although, you know, if you didn't know that, you just weren't paying attention to what the intelligence community had been saying under oath on Capitol Hill, you know, for months leading up to this. So it's this kind of you constantly have to step back to sort of. Realize what's going on. we don't really do that. Do you think people are even paying attention to this anymore? It doesn't really seem like a like a campaign issue at this point, does it?
2: Not really. I would say that when you talk to a lot of voters on the campaign trail, they're still much more focused on health care, jobs, the economy, how to pay for college how to make a living. And so I think that a lot of this does sort of fade into the background as noise. But where Democrats at least have found some success, and it might be still more in terms of shoring up their own base, it's in this anti-corruption platform against the Trump administration and this uh, breaking down of norms. And I don't think that that's necessarily moving uh, people to the polls, but it does help to energize at least the Democratic base to say, look, uh, this president already welcomed help from the Russians as a candidate in 2016, volume one of the Mueller report, the Trump campaign understood that it was going to benefit electorally from Russian interference. And now he's doing it again. And he's using the power of the presidency uh, to protect himself. And so I think that they believe that that message resonates. I don't think that that's what's going to move independents who swung for Trump and they're trying to win over those voters. I don't think that that's what the election is ultimately going to be about. Uh, But I think that insofar as they frame it around this idea of corruption, uh, they at least have been able to appeal to the urgency of limiting uh, President Trump's tenure to one term among Democratic primary voters who still say that that is their utmost priority. And so I think that is still what has really, uh, in many ways, defined the Democratic race for the nomination. Again, I think they're going to have to shift to health care, the economy when you get to the general election. But I, I do find that it's been very much the case that every democratic primary voter you talk to when you ask them what is the number one priority for you as a voter they say defeating Donald Trump
1: yeah and but and and it gets back to what we were talking talking about a moment ago however they pick they they are on the path to pick a candidate who wants a more structural fundamental i think change to the country. I don't think anybody's talked about what sort of, you know, President uh, Sanders would be from a from a courts and justice system. I can't tell you how many press releases
3: I've gotten. Is this the debate where someone asks about asks the Democrats about what they think about the courts? Because it just it's a question that is on some people's minds, maybe not everybody's minds, but it is an important thing. The person who is in charge of the executive branch gets to nominate judges. And there—there there is a lot of questions about, you know, how does the executive branch play with the
1: courts? Well, Elizabeth Warren, we know she tried to break up tech companies. That would be, a, you know, something that theoretically should involve the, the Justice Department, I guess, um, since it would it would come under, you know, legal scrutiny. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, the entire if, if you were to actually go down the, the, the mental rabbit hole of trying to enact Medicare for all, that would be such a fraught, um, you know, system, the, the entire health care, all of these insurers would sue, I would think. I mean, I think we're sort
2: of at a moment, though, where because of how polarized the country is, and especially if you look at the dynamic between the two parties on Capitol Hill, no matter who's in office, you're going to see a number of attempts to uh, bring policy b- before the Supreme Court. And you saw it with Obamacare. Uh, You've seen it with much of Trump's agenda, the travel ban and any number of issues. A lot of his actions on immigration have been caught up in the courts. And so, you know, a lot of people look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and say almost everything they try to do will probably get stalled in the courts. But we've kind of reached a point where I think that that's just the ways in which, uh, you know, their political opponents at least try to obstruct part of their agenda. Well, I
3: would jump in on that, though. Um, That's the way the system's supposed to work, I think, in a lot of ways, where Congress passes laws and then they are tested in the court system to make sure exactly those things will get tested no matter what sort of policies every administration has that sort of thing. It it just so happens that some gain a lot more public interest than others. And
1: it may just be years and years down down the pike as 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 we as we see, you know, now we're litigating 2016 in the courts and 2020 is happening in front of us. Okay, Caitlin and Sabrina, we'll leave it there for now. I want to thank you both so much for joining me here today. A friendly reminder to our listeners, we've got a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe in your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It really does help people find the show. And of course, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.